You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, Good morning, Alice. Hi, how's it going? I'm well, thanks. You were in unison this morning. I oh, know. How about that? <laughs> doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't. Yeah. So how was your weekend? Oh, the weekend was good. A bit more relaxed. I think I had a lot of guests last weekend, which was lovely. But, uh, yeah, it's nice to just chill a little bit this nice. weekend. Yeah. How and about yours? Yeah, not too bad. Kind of same. A mixture of, like, chilled and also active. I went to um, watch the UK because England were in the final of the Rugby World Cup. Oh, so I watched that. We did And which win. team did you hope for? Well, I was rooting on for uh, England, of course, but <laughs> South Africa beat us. Oh, and okay. yeah, so lots of very emotional oh, English people. Oh, I see. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a toughie, but it's. But you're here this morning. And I'm here this morning. That's amazing. <laughs> exactly. That's great. But, um, we, we ran into each other. On Thursday morning. On Thursday morning at yeah. the iMark blockade or demonstration. And we did. Yeah. yeah. What did you feel being there? I felt... Um, Oh, the energy was, I mean, we were there in the morning, so I got there at about eight o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. or about quarter to eight. And the energy was high, really high even then, I yeah. felt. And there was yes. a lot of music and the speakers, people were just um, getting on the mic and and speaking up and singing and rapping. And, and it was, yeah, it was powerful. And the police presence there felt yeah i mean a bit uncomfortable uncomfortable yeah, yeah. it's probably you know one-to-one demonstrator yeah police almost it was yeah pretty strong but look let's just go back for a second okay because i don't know if our listeners have realized it's november we oh know with gosh. all the excitement about the melbourne cup coming up tomorrow for those who follow that yeah and um and a lot of people taking today's a long weekend um you know no, so november 4th today yeah yeah so I, I if people are you know relaxing sleeping in chilling out uh, we kind of hope you took just reached across and turned on your radio, <laughs> yeah. or or maybe you're listening on your device. And if you are, it's great to have you here this morning. It's wonderful. Mm. And I hope. And if you were awake really early, and you heard Beyond Zero Emissions, what a great show this morning! So mm. interesting. Always love that show. Yeah. So big thanks to the great people that that produce that as well. Yeah. And if you are still in bed. You might be wondering, what's the weather like out there? <laughs> what did you did you notice? I mean, uh, you're almost recovering from the sport on the weekend. Yeah, almost. <laughs> I, it was crisp outside today, I felt. 
yeah. jumper. Kind of gonna, I needed a jumper this morning. You did, yes. It's it was a bit cool, mm. and uh, I but I did notice something really special coming in this morning, which I haven't ever seen before with all the year of um, doing breakfast at 3CR. And that was the, the buildings, you know, the downtown buildings, which you can see as you're coming, driving down Smith Street, were um, reflecting a bit of the glow of the leftover sunrise. Oh. That almost, I've never seen it before. Yeah. It was, they were just slightly pink. And it was, <laughs> it was pretty gorgeous, actually. It was a guy. Last, remember last week it was balloons. Yeah. <laughs> this week, this it was week it's uh, pink. <laughs> Pink off the buildings. So that was a kind of special coming in. But, Mm. yeah, it was cool. And, in fact, the windshield almost looked a bit like there'd been frost. I haven't checked my garden. Mm. uh, I hope the basil is all right. Oh, I'm sure it is. I checked mine (laughs) on my way out. Yeah, I've got them growing some tomatoes, some silver beet and some beetroot. I gave them a little check over. They're doing very well. Excellent. Okay, well, that's good. I think your your basil might be safe. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, weekends and, and starting to things starting to grow, which is really kind of lovely. And uh, what have we got on the show today, Alice? I think you've been checking out what's going on yeah, in the UK. I have. So over the weekend, I spoke to um, doctoral researcher at the University of Nottingham, Chris Stafford, and we were we were just talking about what is going on in the UK at the moment. So. If you are following um, at home, you might have seen that we're going to be also going into a general election now in December. So that's a, that's a very new development in the whole Brexit conversation. So um, I spoke to Chris about that, and we're going to be listening to that at about 8.15. Yeah, well, I'm really interested to hear. I mean, just that story is so complicated isn't it 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 is and it's really hard because obviously we've we've um covered it uh back in july we spoke to simon tormey about boris johnson coming in as yeah Mm -hmm. prime minister but if you if you do look away for too long theresa may with lipstick as i recall yeah (laughs) yeah on the uh yeah yeah, the old brexit negotiation deal Mm. but um yeah if you look away for too long you just miss so much it just moves it's just been moving really quickly um and this again is a new development that has moved pretty quickly so we're we're going to be speaking to chris um really about the eu scotland's also potentially gonna i mean break out yeah yeah. break away yeah there's no reason for them not to go for another referendum they wholeheartedly voted to remain and now we yes. we we look as though we we will be leaving, but the general election I think is is really just the last kind of cog in this in this Brexit wheel, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's going it, to be fascinating. It's going to be fascinating, and and mm. the voters this time have way more information than they did before, That's right. yeah. and they truly will I think be making a decision whether we we stay or leave. Yeah, that's what that just by this election. Will be about. Yeah, well, it's fascinating that one. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at eight, I don't know if you noticed, but um, the federal government had a letter from the um, 
International Narcotics Control Board, which (laughs) has noticed, (laughs) reached out his long arm and pointed its finger (laughs) at the ACT, because guess what the ACT is doing from in January or the end of January? They're going to legalize possession of small amounts of marijuana for personal use. And this has come to the attention. Of the International Narcotics Control Board. Yeah. And, um, and so the, you know, they've, um, naughty, naughty, naughty. And, uh, so I was anyway, speaking to Greg Denham about that and just what is the International Narcotics Control Board. So we're going to hear from him around eight o'clock. And, um, but, you know, talking about complex issues, uh, we'll be speaking. We've got you know, two stories that are related, interacting. Uh, we're going at 7.30, we'll be speaking with Associate Professor Mehmet Ozalp about the ceasefire, and that's in quotes, in northern Syria, and how the different powers are positioning themselves in that region, kind of what they want out of the agreements that they've uh, come to. And uh, then following that, we're going to speak to Fionn Scottis from Australians for Kurdistan, and he's going to look at the human dimension of what's going on, and particularly what's happening for the Kurds who had hoped for an autonomous state mm. in that area. Yeah. And uh, Saturday was uh, Saturday, November second, was World Resistance Day for Rojava, mm. and uh, he'll tell us about that. He's one of the organisers. So we're going to hear kind of both that two aspects of that of that conversation of that issue. But. I think to to start with, we'll we'll be going back to IMARC as we talked about earlier, and uh, hearing yeah some talking to people there who were actually there on this on that Thursday morning on the last day about some of their experiences over the three days. So we'll be doing that uh, in a few minutes. But uh, first of all, we're just going to have a bit of music to bring you into another day, Molly Johnson. Another day. Feel that itch and you know you should stay 
that was Molly Johnson with Another Day, and it is another day. And I don't know how your day is uh, looking this morning. If you decide to make a long weekend, you might still be in bed, or you might be on your way to work. But wherever you are, we're thrilled that you're tuning in here to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Now, I'm sure everyone will be very aware, all our listeners, Alice in particular, mm-hmm. that the annual International Mining Resources Conference, IMARC, was held in Melbourne last week for three days, well, from 20, October 29th, 31st, um, Australia's largest mining event, over 7,000 people attending from 100 countries. And, of course, they were greeted um, by climate activists, as they should be who gathered at the Melbourne Conference, uh, sorry, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, and they were there from 6 o'clock every morning of the conference to blockade the entrance and to draw attention to the damage mining is doing in the environment, the climate, Indigenous peoples around the world. So I went along with Annalise, and I both did, actually, as we said earlier, on, uh, on Thursday, and I wanted to be there for, to offer some support, to hear some of the talks and to find out why people had decided to get involved. So lots of people spoke to me, and which was great. And uh, I just want to play and share with people listening today, and especially if you couldn't get there, um, because really it was a, a pretty amazing and pretty special event to be part of or to be at. So here we are. I, Mark. Blockade. because the companies that are at this mining conference represent 18% of the total global greenhouse gas emissions and that's a very significant amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are represented in this one conference so that's the reason I'm here to let those companies know that we care about our future and we want them to stop what they're doing. Well, we're really concerned about what's going on in this uh, convention here. It's primarily about uh, fossil fuels and mining and, and non-renewable sources of energy. They're making a, a bunch of deals that affect everyone on the planet, um, climate-related deals, and we're just very unhappy about that. So we're out here to voice that we are actually standing up and we, we take issue with what they're doing. And it seems like the way that they want to negotiate with us is by sending out way too many police officers to uh, unleash brutality on us, which is exactly what they've done yesterday. But you've still come back today. We've still come back today. I was still back here yesterday, and it's no way to get a, a point across spraying chemicals in someone's face. We're standing here peacefully, protesting, and uh, we're, not, uh, so we're not inciting any aggression whatsoever. The aggression is very much a one-directional thing, and it's coming from the, the police, and it's coming to us. Um, but we're, we're enduring. Um, we're confident in what we're doing, and we're, we take pride in what we do as well. Like, we're very proud of our, our actions here. Yeah, thank you um, for giving us a bit of time to talk. I haven't been involved much in activism until recently, I've, and I, it's all come about because I've started kind of looking into what the science actually says about climate change and, and realising that, you know, we've really only got a small window, really, really small window, less than a decade to, to address this issue. And when you really understand it and realise that, you know, the government aren't having this conversation, you just feel compelled, you have to just do something. So I've come along and... It's great to, to be around people who are also concerned and let's just hope that the, the government start in, engaging in the real conversation. 
So I'm, I'm Jesse. Um, I'm here at the protest today because most Australians agree that climate change is a thing. The science behind it is in. Something needs to happen about it and something needs to happen about it now. And we're hosting this, this international mining and resources conference where um, corporate interests across the world are discussing deals about fossil fuels and what they, how they're going to go about you know, digging them out of the earth and screwing over the environment. Um, so we've got the climate criminals in the building and we're here to protest that. We should be moving away from fossil fuels. We, should, we shouldn't even have fossil fuels at this point. Like, this is dangerous and it's wrong and it's, it's, this isn't a game. This is incredibly irresponsible. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of um, police brutality. This is absolutely atrocious. Um, the climate criminals are inside. We're not the criminals. We represent the voice of the people. Uh, we represent freedom of speech. I'm here because I want to take a stand against the many um, companies that are attending the conference that are responsible for extremely significant environmental destruction. And for me, it's been about just getting an education on this stuff um, over the last few months and even including over the weekend. There was an Indigenous forum held as part of blockade IMARC preparations. We heard from Indigenous Australians, Indigenous people from West Papua and from Chile. And the reason why I'm here today, as a working Australian, I work in full time, but I took my RDO today to be here in this rally to talk about what many of those mining companies are doing in Latino America, where I come from, the Americas. They are polluting our water. They have the right, the legal right, to change the course of our rivers. Shame of them. They use our water. We pay for the water. They don't. So a lot of people don't understand what it means when they talk about profit. Yes, they make a lot of money. But not just indigenous people, also peasants, workers, animals, and the environment. We suffer for two or three people who make themselves millionaires. Of course, it's shame of them. Shame that they have the power to have so many policemen here outside today protecting them. And look how defenseless we are. No one is protecting us. We don't have the right to be protected because we don't provide any money for the government. I just want you to contribute today in this um, blockade manifestation. A little bit of what's happening in Colombia, Chile. In Colombia, BHP has the biggest coal mine in Cerrejón. You need to go there for you to understand. You cannot breathe, you know. You can be two minutes in Cerrejón wearing something white, and that will turn into black. And that's what my people is breathing. That's what they breathe every day. If you get a glass of water, you will see that the water is black. Would you drink that? I don't think so, but we have to because there is no other source of water. So, no matter how the indigenous communities, peasants, workers, because we are talking about a lot of workers who get affected also, we complain, but nothing happened. No matter we are the majority, when we go to the street, we are a majority, but we don't have the power, we are not in power. Here in Australia, you have the right to demonstrate yourself. If I will be back home, and at this instance, I will be in jail straight away. No right to express your anger 
or to denounce what's happening. Here, I, was, I feel ashamed of what happened yesterday when I saw the news. You know, the police attacking the protesters. I think I've never seen that. I've been in Australia over 20 plus years. And the police has been always protecting those ones who are expressing, you know, different views, expressing that using the democratic right to demonstrate and protest. I hope that today, that is the last day of this conference, you know, that it shouldn't happen in the first place. You know, we shouldn't have this kind of conference here, or nowhere, I will say, where rich people come to discuss, all right, what is the next country? Oh, I think I saw some good land, you know, somewhere there. We can go and open a mine. And who cares who lives there? We have the power, you know, to get that land. And I, something that I always do, but I didn't do today, is that, is to introduce myself. But look, look what's happening now. Look, see, that's with the police and the horses attacking the protesters. Shame. And what my friend and I realised was that there was too much, too much police brutality when we came here. We saw our friends being, you know, capsicum scraped for absolutely no reason. If we came here to protest, how many days have you been here? This is my second day. It's, I think, today's the third day. Yeah. So you were here yesterday, and then you saw some capsicum spray being used. Yeah, it was horrible. It was, it was really quite frightening to think that we're part of something that's, you know, really now. It's. It's something that you see in the movie, it's something you see in the papers, but it's not something that you've ever really experienced. When I was here on Tuesday and Wednesday, I was just completely blown away by the police violence. Um, I was arrested. I still don't know why. Um, I had a When you were arrested, were you taken to the police station? I wasn't taken to the police station. I was just taken inside um, the foyer of the convention centre, which they've turned into a bit of a cop shop, a bit of a processing area for um, those arrested. But just to clarify, yeah, I had placards and I had a whistle and the police came forward and plucked me out of the protesters. I wasn't even at the front of the protest line. Tackled to the ground by three or four police, face down on the pavement, put in handcuffs and I was told that I was hindering police. I still don't know why. I told them that I couldn't understand that charge. The only explanation I can think of is the whistle was quite noisy and they didn't like that noise making. But I was absolutely shocked. I didn't come here thinking I would be arrested. Um, it was really upsetting. Yeah, it just blew me away. Um, so, yeah, that's my personal experience. Others at the um, blockade on Tuesday and Wednesday have experienced far worse, far, far worse from the police. And I've been trying to like, understand why. I've been talking to people um, about why the police have these tactics and... You know, the only conclusion that we can sort of come to is that like, they know we're passionate, they know we're here for a reason, and if it gets violent, we get scared, and the instinctual response is to fight back with fear and anger, and then we look like not just a passionate group of people, but an angry group of people. And, yeah, I was really saddened by that, that I actually felt that happening to myself. I turned up on Tuesday morning as a passionate person. By Tuesday afternoon, I felt angry because I'd been assaulted by police. And it sounds to me like you're just about in tears thinking back about yeah, it. It is upsetting, yeah. And obviously totally unexpected. Absolutely unexpected. 
yeah, I'm here today with a different placard. Yeah, really trying to keep the message going that we're here to, you know, stop corporate greed and we have to speak up to these people in the positions of power and tell them that it's not good enough. Yeah, and I guess just watching today, in some ways, the tactics of the police have taken attention away from the main message. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think that is a really sad outcome. The preparations for Blockade IMARC that I attended, and they, I certainly wasn't at all of them, very focused. You know, the Blockade IMARC Alliance has very clear points of unity. I've got one of them written on my placard. Want to um, just read that? I'll read it out. Blockade IMARC is a non-violent protest held in the traditions of S11, Occupy and the Jabaluka campaigns. We are fighting against the violence towards all living beings and the planet which the IMARC conference enacts and condemn the violence of the police. And that was Laura uh, finishing off our report on the IMARC blockade. And big thank you to Laura for telling us about her experiences with the police and um, even though that that wasn't easy, and also, you know, her reflections. I mean, obviously, she's a, a thinker, a deep thinker, and, and, you know, what does this mean? What, you know, what's it about? So, yeah, really important. Big thanks, Laura. That was fantastic. And uh, also, um, the, the person who was speaking who didn't get a chance to introduce herself was Marisol Salinas, and she's from Chile. And, uh, yeah, and interesting that she said this is the first time over 20 years in Australia, and I, I feel she's been a campaigner for some time, and it's mm. the first time she's seen this kind of behavior from the police. And also from you know, things that Laura said, other people said, obviously the IMARC blockade was very well organized, very educational, information provided to the people there. And, uh, you know, interesting, everyone I spoke to, and, and that was just some of the people, but they were very well informed. They knew why they were there. And uh, some people had learned more by being involved as well. So I think a big congratulations to the um, organizers. And this morning, interestingly, in the news, we have the UN chief, Antonio Guterres, warning Asia to quit addiction to coal as climate change threatens the region. So this story will be ongoing, and I think that story also in the news this morning vindicates the people that have been out. Uh, And, uh, you know, why the police are out in such numbers, I still cannot. I mean, you know, when you, as um, as Marisol said, look at us. You know, we're, we're, I mean, what was your feeling when you looked at the crowd there? Yeah. Dangerous people. I thought no, like not at all. And it was very peaceful. And also, I had Thursday was my first time at the um, the the IMARC uh, blockade. But yeah, it felt like the crowd wasn't half the size that that type of police force should like would even would, be yeah. around for it wasn't commensurate I mean, yeah it really didn't make sense and yeah it was yeah and and when laura was talking about her experience and saying that actually when when the crowd is met with violence a natural human reaction to that is mm. is fear anger and yeah and and so they, I feel like they have been manipulated in, in many ways as to how they might have responded to police yeah. brutality, and that is a that is a strategy in itself. Yes, and now for what it's worth, Buffalo Springfield, and um, this was also a song written by Stephen Stills in response to police uh, response to demonstrators in Los Angeles years ago, many years ago. There's something happening here 
what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down There's bad lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance from behind Every time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going Feel day for the heat. A thousand people in the street singing songs and they're carrying signs. Mostly say hooray for our side. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going on. talking about ecological thinning and subsidised logging, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And the time is around 7.32 here on a Monday morning if you're uh, in a hurry to get out somewhere and just wondering (laughs) what the time is. And um, when we came into the studio, it was clear. I'm not sure now. <laughs> we, won't, we won't be able to get, update you. <laughs> any a lot further. can change yeah. in the space of a Monday breakfast show. No, no. So you may have just to go out and, you know, check and see how it is. So I'm sure uh, people listening are aware of the Turkish invasion of northern Syria on October 9th. 
after the U.S. withdrew its troops and the viciousness of the attacks, which led to an outcry from the international community and resulted in a, a ceasefire. And, and uh, everything I've read about the cease, that ceasefire has been in quotes, <laughs> suggesting, you know, was it really? Mm. Um, and and also it's leading to a lot of discussion about, you know, how is power shifting in the region now that U.S. has pulled out? In a paper published in the conversation on October 23rd entitled Ceasefire, again in quotes, in Syria is ending, here's what's likely to happen now, Associate Professor Mehmet Ozalp, who's the Director of the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University, outlined some of the forces at play in the region. But before we go to that interview, I just want to read a little bit from the paper, uh, because I think it, for people who I know some people will be very familiar, others less so. So, he says that even though Turkey has been, has been building and had been building its forces on the border with Syria for some time, the U.S. allied Kurdish YPG, which uh, Turkey considers a terrorist group, was caught by surprise. And I think every, I mean, in the U.S. as well, people were caught by surprise when President Trump announced that withdrawal. Um, the YPG were busy fighting Islamic State, which they have been doing with the U.S. and have been a powerful ally with the U.S. and very successful in that work and at great cost. I think they've lost 11,000 people killed in that and, of course, many more injured. And uh, they weren't expecting the U.S. to allow Turkish forces across the border. So battle-weary YPG forces were no match for the powerful Turkish army. As a result, commanders begged the Trump administration to intervene. And I'm still quoting here now uh, from Associate um, Professor Azalp's paper. The ceasefire deal was struck to allow YPG forces to withdraw beyond what Turkey calls a safe zone. And Trump declared the ceasefire to be a validation of his erratic Syrian policy. So that's just some background. For, and my first question to um, uh, our social professor Azelp was why he thought a clash between Turkey and Bashir al-Assad's Syrian government in northern Syria was now quite unlikely. Well, from the outset, it seems because the, the Kurdish opposition uh, aligned with the Assad government and then the area has been occupied by Turkey, uh, the expectation was a clash between the two. But really, uh, the objectives of the Assad government and the Turkish government, Erdogan, uh, overlap. And uh, that's why I, I wrote that I don't expect a clash. Rather, I expect uh, both sides to keep it tense so yes. that uh, they can uh, be on the negotiation table and get what they want. It's in their interest that the Kurdish zone is weakened and there is no uh, alternative or local autonomous government made up of various Kurdish elements in that area. Assad government wants total control of Syria in the post-civil war country. The Turkish government or Erdogan doesn't want it because they fear that it could lead to an independent uh, Kurdish state, which could then influence the Kurds in Turkey towards that goal as well. But what are Russia's interests and goals in Syria? Now, Russia's goal has been very clear from the beginning, 2011, and then later when they got actively involved in 2015. Their goal is to keep economic and military influence over Syria and have access to Mediterranean Sea in the geopolitical game, that would mean that the Assad government has to stay in power because anyone else who comes in will not want Russia to be involved in Syria. 
And anything else that Russia can get by its involvement in Syria, it's a plus. Putin and Russia have developed close ties and collaboration with Turkey and the President Erdogan, and that has led to Turkey buying the S-400 missiles from Russia. So it seems that Turkey is starting to have a military alliance with Russia as well, which means that it is moving away from the NATO pact. It hasn't moved away completely, but we can see steps taking place. Yes, and I guess when we're talking about Russia's interests in Syria, we're talking about Tartus, is that right? They've got a base there? Yeah, that's the main base, but they do uh, have a major influence in the entire country. Uh, Russia is the one that's supplying weapons to Assad government uh, and any other supplies, fuel, uh, just about everything. Without Russian support, the Assad government would have fell a long time ago. And, and the USSR was a supporter of his father. That's right. Uh, Syria was a major uh, gateway to Russia uh, into warmer waters like Mediterranean Sea and from there into Red Sea. And, uh, and also Russia was not very happy with the growing U.S. interference and influence in Middle East and that uh, Putin wanted to prevent the confrontation in a proxy war and push the United States out of Syria. And it seems like that he's been successful in that. What possibilities does the Turkish intervention open up for Assad? Well, it's already uh, opened up the possibility of the Assad government forces moving into Kurdish areas. Since the beginning of the civil war in Syria, 2011, the Kurdish and the Assad government, they have never clashed. The Assad government pulled out its forces and its government agencies out of the eastern Syria and the Kurdish regions. And that has enabled the development of an autonomous Kurdish area. But now when Turkey has sent its troops across the border and the Kurdish YPG has asked for support from Assad government, certainly they jumped at it. And now they have forces in Kobani, very strategic towns, and they will be patrolling the borders of that safe zone, which is 32 kilometers south of Turkish border, so they will be actively involved, which means the government's influences now in the majority of the Syria, except the Idlib province. All of the, the Sunni oppositions have been gathering in Idlib as a last stronghold. So just to go back a moment, so you're sure. talking about the opposition to, to the Assad regime that started back during the Arab Spring? That's right. When In 2011, when Arab Spring started and then violence erupted in Syria, there were many, more than 200 groups, and then later these groups got together or a number of them received support from the regional uh, powers, and then they gained the upper hand uh, across other opposition groups. But slowly the Assad government has been targeting and, and uh, defeating uh, these groups, and, uh, and then when they were defeated, they, the remnants of these opposition groups moved to Idlib. Assad government allowed that in a kind of a move to let everybody go there, and then he would have one final showdown between the armed oppositions in Syria. But Turkey had the patronage in that region. So I think on the bargaining table, certainly Russia and the Assad government would want Turkey to stay out of the affairs of Idlib so that Assad government would once again take it over. And if they do that, outside of the safe zone, uh, Assad would have established his complete control. And I think there was a huge concern that it would be a bloodbath if Assad and his forces went into Idlib. 
That was the concern, and there's been negotiations and certain agreements between Turkey, Assad, and Russia and Iran. Uh, so it's been prevented until now. What is likely to happen is that when Turkey says to all these opposition groups, sorry, you're on your own, they would either surrender or, or escape. Maybe a, a portion of them will do that, and a portion of them will want to stay and fight back, and we could have that one final showdown. But I think even if they resist, the Assad forces will prevail. I'm speaking here with Associate Professor Mehmet Ozelp, Director of the Center for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University. And as we spoke, I was thinking about the Assad regime's reputation for use of torture, chemical weapons, and uh, that Syrian people rose up against that. And it all seems it's all been for nothing. Here's Mehmet Ozelp again. Well, this is the tragedy of this whole Syrian uh, saga, unfortunately, you know, after the whole country is destroyed, six million displaced or refugees and uh, more than half a million dead, it may be back to square one. And yeah, this is it's kind of sad, sad for Syria and all the people who suffered along the way that uh, a change was not uh, forthcoming. I'm wondering within the midst of all this, what happens to the, the Kurdish aspirations? Having an autonomous region in northeastern uh, Syria, uh, I don't think that's going to eventuate. Uh, Turkey will not move out of Syria unless uh, the, to ensure that it doesn't happen, which would mean that once Idlib is captured by the Assad government and then uh, the country starts to rebuild itself, I, I assume they will have a new constitution and all new negotiations within all the elements in the country, provided Assad stays in power. Turkey will stay throughout that process to ensure that there is no recognition of a Kurdish autonomous region in the building of new Syria, uh, and then after it achieves that, it will move out. It mm -hmm. could take years. I read uh, in an article about the, the meeting between uh, Putin and Erdogan that Assad has said that Turkey has robbed Syria. So, yes, so, uh, as I predicted in my article, Assad moved to Idlib and did a bit of a showcase, a press conference with all his generals as well. But I think that this is a bit of a show to keep that tension. Uh, you know, Assad's not going to say, oh, welcome Turkey with a red carpet. He's going to always raise it as an issue so that it becomes a bargaining chip to get what he wants. But I think he, he will allow the Turkish forces to stay northeastern Syria with Russian involvement. And it looks like Russian forces are all also involved in patrolling the border. This safe zone that is being created... In your paper, you said the Syrian Arab refugees will be moved to that zone. And I was interested in the term Syrian Arab and what you mean by that. At the moment, in Turkey, there are 3.6 million Syrian refugees, and most of them are Arab uh, ethnicity. And according to the government spokespeople, Turkey wants to relocate these refugees, or some of them, into this region. It would only be the Arab refugees, because there aren't many Kurdish refugees in Turkey. And uh, especially how there's half a million refugees in Istanbul, and that became a major issue in the June election in Turkey this year, which led to Erdogan losing Istanbul, and that's a major loss. Yes, that's huge. Um, 
his own re-election for 2023 is now in jeopardy. So he wants to do something about refugees. And also he would get multiple goals with that. One, getting rid of the refugees from Turkey. And secondly, he's also changing the demographics of northeastern Syria by injecting you know, a million or so Arab Syrians in there it doesn't become a Kurdish region anymore. So I think that is part of the plan. Right. So there's two political motives there. That's you know, right. One is his re-election and hoping to get back, I guess, some votes from Istanbul and diluting the, the presence of Kurds in that area. Yeah. I don't think the YPG has responded yet to the discussions um, last week. How do you think they'll respond? I think they're, they're surprised now that this, all these developments took place. They thought that the United States would protect them and allow them to be in that area. And they haven't clashed with the Assad government, and so they were thinking they have a place on the post-Civil War Syria. Uh, but that's now changed, and I'm sure they're now frantically discussing and thinking what the options are. And unfortunately, it seems that they don't have too many options. And that's Associate Professor Mehmet Ozalp, uh, Director for the Center of Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University. And today, I mean, I spoke to him over a week ago, and the way things move, uh, they move so quickly. So just a day or so after I spoke to him, the U.S. President Donald Trump announced the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State leader, uh, in a U.S. raid, of course, with lots of support from the Kurds and their intelligence in doing that and um, also announced that he's keeping American forces in Syria, not to protect the Kurds, but to secure its oil fields. <laughs> so <laughs> the story keeps on changing, and uh, it just doesn't improve. But next we're going to hear how it is for the Kurds in northern Syria on the ground, so a different side to this story. I guess um, uh, most people have become aware or becoming aware that November 2nd, which was on Saturday, was designated as World Resistance Day for Rojava. And protests took place around the globe on Saturday. And that's the region that's adjacent uh, to Syria and uh, an area that um, both Turkey, Assad and Russia even uh, you know, have taken interest in. Um, the Guardian newspaper published We Stand in Solidarity with Rojava. A letter signed by leaders from social movements, communities, and First Nations people around the world. And in Melbourne, the Kurdish community and their supporters rallied on Saturday. And one of the organizers, Fionn Skiotis, from Australians for Kurdistan, joins us in the studio now. So, welcome to 3CR. And I don't, I have a feeling it might not be your first time on 3CR. No, no, I've been here before, but it's good to be back. Thanks very much. It's lovely to have you in the studio. Thank you. Yeah, on a Monday morning, especially not always an easy call for no, people. It's good to be here, thanks. Yeah. So um, can you tell us just a bit about what it's been like on the ground uh, for Kurdish people since the invasion by Turkey? Well, it's been a very brutal thing. Um, the stories we're hearing here from our friends here who have relatives and family over there is that it, uh, you know, there's been attacks, um, they're ongoing, that there's been no ceasefire in practice, um, and these attacks have been very brutal. Um, you have the Turkish military forces, you have the 
jihadist gangs that the Turkish military has set up and, and supported to be part of the invasion. Um, there is now a very clear evidence of war crimes being committed, um, desecration of bodies, uh, extrajudicial judicial killings away from the, the fighting, um, you know, bombing, including the use of white phosphorus. I read that, yes. In fact, it was in the Guardian article, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a terrible thing. I mean, white phosphorus is something that uh, once it gets on you, it just burns and burns, and uh, children have been killed. Um, it, it's, a, it's a shocking, very shocking thing to see and hear about. Yes, I mean, and, uh, you know, just hearing you speak about it this morning as well, as well as having read about it, uh, it it's, um, yeah, it's gut-wrenching. It is indeed, yeah, it's very harrowing to see. Um, what's important, I think, is, is that the world is made aware of this. Um, I noticed it was on the BBC news site over the weekend, which is great. But it's really important to let people know that what's going on there is completely without justification. The Turkish state has told a lot of lies about why it needed to do what it did, um, saying that the YPG and the YPJ were terrorist organisations. Can you just uh, tell me who the YPJ are? Sure. Well, the YPJ is the women's militia in Rojava in northern Syria. Um, so you don't really have regular armed forces in that area. You have people's militia, citizens' militia. So the YPG is the general uh, militia, um, and the YPJ is women only. And between them, they uh, are the main elements of the Syrian Democratic Forces. The other elements are Arab, Syriac, uh, Christian, various Yazidi, other communities that have joined with them in that area to, to set up a, a, de- a defence force for the, the region. Um, they're doing their best to fight back, but they just have light arms. Um, they have, uh, so yeah. that when you say fight back, they're fighting against the, the Turkish invasion along with the jihadist militias who have joined that yeah. Turkish yeah. Uh, force. But, you know, it's not a one-sided fight. Um, no. Tur- Turkey is no. the uh, second largest na- has the second largest NATO army. It's very well armed. It has all kinds of fighters and bomber aircraft. It has uh, the use of all kinds of interesting weapons. It's, it's particularly using a lot of drone technology. So there are drones in over the Rajava region which are picking off people indiscriminately, we're told. Yeah. Um, and so they're I really also, against it. Sorry, yeah. Uh, and I've also read that, in fact, the Turks are also using intelligence from the U.S., uh, about you know where different pe- people are located. I think the U.S. has stopped that now, but initially um, they have um, been using that as well. So not only they've uh, um, superior arms, but they've also got uh, good intelligence as well. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very one-sided fight, and I think the world needs to step in. Um, the world powers, uh, the European powers, the U.S. needs to come around. I think Australia should should be doing what it can to demand that this outrageous incursion and invasion is stopped, and in fact that the Turkish military and their gangs leave the area. As I said, there's absolutely no justification for invading in the first place. There was never any aggression towards Turkey from that region. I mean, people were extremely careful to avoid that um, because of the threat of invasion. So it's, it's always been a, a very peaceful border, in fact. So all, this, all these lies about creating a safe zone are just that. It was safe. It was perfectly safe for people to live there. And with the Turkish invasion, it's now become very unsafe. And Turkey obviously has plans to get rid of the Kurds from that region and, uh, as I think the speaker before said, to resettle Arab refugees from who are now in Turkey in the area in what is effective eth- effectively ethnic cleansing. 
um, and also itself against international law. Yes. And, uh, you know, the article that was in The Guardian says that, you know, there's a lot more at stake here. Uh, it's human, and what's at stake is humanity's ability to survive our current civilizational crisis and imagine new alternatives before it's too late. What were some of the new alternatives that Rojava was introducing? What, I mean, you mentioned the women's militia, for example. What were some of the aspects of that society, of that autonomous state, that have important lessons for everyone? Yeah, well, it's been an extremely interesting experiment over there for the last uh, six or seven years. Um, what you have is a society that's set up on... Uh, very democratic, uh, in fact, collectivist principles. So power is not held by any particular interests or group of people. Um, you have a series of uh, collectives which, uh, which federate up to the regional level. So everybody is very involved in, even at the local level or beyond that, at, in uh, organizing their own life and, and controlling the aspects of their life that are important. Um, you have a very strong emphasis on gender equality and women's rights. It's been you know, an absolute revolution there, feminist revolution people talk about. And, and, and it's very unique. interesting coming in that part of the world where exactly, often yeah, women don't yeah. enjoy those rights. And you see a lot of comments about in the international media about the Middle East and what a terrible place it, uh, it can be and uh, you know, a benighted place, all sorts of issues. And yet the, the Kurds in northern Syria have created an oasis of peace, an oasis of hope, um, and at the same time, they have beaten territorially the uh, scourge of Islamic State at the cost of 11,000 young people of their own of their community yeah. uh, and 20,000 seriously injured. And for doing that, what do we? How do we pay them back? Well, we let the Turkish uh, military invade, and 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 U.S. President Trump gives the green light, a tacit green light, and gets out of the way. I mean, I really think that's quite immoral and disgusting. And people within the U.S. have also criticized Trump uh, about his capture of the Islamic leader, the ISIS, not Islamic, sorry, the um, ISIS leader has probably mitigated that a little bit, but, uh, uh, you know, and drawn attention away from the horrors of what he's done, the awfulness of what he's done. And I know, I think people from uh, the area have been in the United States speaking out about what's going on. Yeah, they, they have, and they, they try that. Um, and there are, you're right, there are voices in the United States speaking against what Trump has done, even with his own, within his own party, interestingly enough, pointing out that uh, once you betray friends like the Kurds, um, it's not so easy to find friends down the track. People are going to be suspicious of you. Um, and the, other, the other totally disgusting thing to watch is uh, the Turkish president Erdogan, the dictator, and Vladimir Putin between them deciding on the fate of this region that has really nothing to do with either of them. Um, yes. And they say, well, yep, we're going to reach an agreement and, you, you, you know, we're going to uh, have combined patrols and so on. I mean, the region should be controlled by the people who live there and they have been controlling it and doing very well and setting up this interesting experiment with real democracy, with women's rights, with a strong emphasis on ecology. These are the people that Erdogan calls terrorists. They're nothing of the sort. Yes. And, uh, I mean, Erdogan came to power through um, devious means anyway. I mean, his whole history in gaining um, power within Turkey. And, and then the, when people of the army rose up against him, he, he did, I think thousands of people were imprisoned. So his own um, reputation is pretty poor. Well, there's the merest semblance of democracy in Turkey. Yes. Many journalists are jailed. Opposition figures are jailed. 
there's a party, an opposition party in Turkey, which has strong Kurdish representation. Yes, and I that, remember that. You know, you're mm-hmm. lucky if you're elected for that party to, to be able to retain your representation. The mayors who were elected recently from that party have been replaced by Erdogan appointees. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. You know, on the flimsiest of excuses that they have some association with the PKK, yeah. um, simply because they're Kurdish. I mean, this is a country that barely has any democracy. Yeah. Um, and Erdogan is, uh, I think the earlier speaker re- referred to this, is shoring up his political uh, popularity ahead of the election, the presidential ele- elections in 2023, by whipping up this nationalist sentiment in Turkey. Unfortunately, it seems to work. Oh. There is a strong nationalist sentiment in Turkey. So uh, getting stuck into the Kurds, unfortunately, is uh, a popular thing to do for many, many Turkish people. Yeah. So uh, how did, there was a rally on uh, on Saturday and and the rain came down. It did indeed. <laughs> you get people out. We did, yeah. Look, look, we were pleased with the turnout. Um, it wasn't huge, but it was uh, equal to what we'd had before. And I think with the rain and and the cup long weekend, yes. um, I think it was pretty good turnout. But uh, of course, that's not that was World Day for resistance on Rajava, as you said. But um, there will be more things coming up. We're yes. organising more uh, vigils, more rallies. Uh, we have to do a solidarity concert between now and Christmas. Um, there's a sign-on statement you can sign on our website, australiansforkurdistan.org.au. Um, and, you know, we really encourage people to keep their ear to the ground uh, through the website or through 3CR and hear about what's going on and join in because even though we're up against huge odds ourselves and our Kurdish friends, it really is important to keep pushing back against this really outrageous action. I mean, just what you've described, and what you've described I've read, you know, over the weekend in in many different places, lots of different reports. So I know people listening here at 3CR will be wanting to take action. They'll be wanting to do something. Uh, You've already talked about your website and uh, and that you've got some events coming up. Any dates on those events? Not just yet, but stay tuned. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get the information out. Yes, and please email me or send me that information because we can report it on Monday Breakfast. I'm sure other other um, programs will what can but people listening what can they do is there something that they can do like right now well i think there's a couple of things one is to sign the statement uh on on our website australiansforkurdistan.org.au um the other is to get in touch with pol- any australian politician whether it's the prime minister the foreign minister or their local pol- politician and just point out that australia really should be raising its voice very strongly against this invasion nothing kind of uh, you know, Scott Morrison came out and said when the invasion started and said uh, he wanted both sides to be to be uh, exercise restraint. I mean, that's a that's an incredibly <laughs> stupid statement. One side is invading. The other is basically getting out of the way. Yes. So restraint on both sides is just an idiotic comment. Yeah. Um, Australia should really be pushing for a no fly zone in that area. Yeah. They should be pushing for a withdrawal of all uh, Turkish military and, and their gangs. Um, and they should be showing some support for the people who are in that region, who, as I say, have done heroic things, truly heroic things, fighting back Islamic State on behalf of the Western world. So Australia has those people to thank. Australian lives have been saved at the cost of those people's young young people in that region. Were were any politicians at the rally? I mean, has there been anyone who come out in support? Sure, yes. So um, Senator Janet Rice was there from from the Greens, and she spoke very well, and we're very thankful for that. The Greens have also raised the... um, the issue in Parliament, and, and I believe we'll try to do so again. Um, not to make this uh, party political, we're looking for support right across the political spectrum, 
Um, and we think really we should get that. I mean, the Kurds in, in northern Syria have protected Christian communities, they've protected Yazidis, they've protected a lot of people, yes. and they've really done the right thing. They've looked after refugees, they've beaten back Islamic State, um, and as I say, they don't do that while developing this very democratic, uh, gender equality, e- ecological uh, focus, and, and, and really I think we all should be getting behind them, including our politicians. Thank you so much for coming in this morning and, uh, yeah, for the information, the update, and what we can do. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Dion Siotis. Thank you.
beautiful voice of Garmal with uh, Gopuru, a song about country. And a big thank you also to uh, Fionn Skiotis, for Australians for Kurdistan, for coming in uh, on a Monday morning and uh, uh, talking about the campaign that they have going. So I'm sure people will respond. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So as I mentioned way back in the beginning of the show <laughs> when we were doing the rundown of, of what's coming up, um, the ACT has passed legislation that's going to come into effect in January. Oh, I'm sorry, January, yeah, January 31st next year. I can't believe we're talking about 2020 already, but we, <laughs> we are. But we are. Yes. Um, <clears throat> allowing cultivation and possession of small amounts of cannabis for personal use for anyone over 18, over 18 years. Now, and that needs to be put in the context of the sale or supply of cannabis is still a criminal offence. So it's a fairly small move around legalisation compared to what's happened, you know, around the world. But uh, senior federal government ministers have been very vocal against the move, and it seems now that they've um, gained a bit of support from the UN International Narcotics Control Board. So that sound a bit scary to you, Alice? Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm still trying to get my head around all of it. All of it, yes. So, um, so the UN International Narcotics Control Board, and I think we need to get used to the acronym, yeah. uh, or the you know, INCB, we can call it the INCB, has sent a letter uh, to the Australian government, and it's warned about a breach of international law. So, um, kind of, what does it all mean, mm. really? Uh, is the government now quaking in its boots, for example? Um, <laughs> I caught up with Greg Denham. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I do find it humorous in a way. You know, we have this uh, international body that's kind of, you know, looked around and discovered the ACT. <laughs> there, there is something. But I, I caught up with Greg Denham, who's been a regular contributor to our program, um, but he's not, he wasn't able to come in. He's on holiday, but he made time to catch up with me before he went away. So we have a, a pre-recorded interview. Greg is, I think many of our listeners know, is a former police officer who's worked for the UN. Uh, and he's worked particularly with law enforcement uh, agencies in countries in Africa, in Southeast Asia, and he's also part of LEAP Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, currently editor of LEAP's Australian newsletter. So I, when I met up with him, and I have to say, a little bit noisy back when I was in a cafe, you know, a little bit going on, the truck's going by. <laughs> we sat outside because the inside was music on, so <laughs> that was the best place. So we would get a lot of the, the street sounds. Um, but I started by asking him, where does the International Narcotic, Narcotics Control Board, or INCB, fit in the UN drug control regime? Well, the INCB really is the uh, agency that was set up by the UN to, to monitor and ensure that countries, uh, member states as they're called, comply with their international obligations under the various conventions that have been um, promulgated under the UN system, which are three main conventions. So the one that often is referred to is the single convention, which is one of the oldest conventions. And basically the conventions state that uh, unless it's for a scientific or medical purpose, production, supply and use of certain um, prescribed drugs is, or member states should enact laws that prohibit the supply 
And by member states, you're referring to countries that have signed on to the convention. Yeah, that signed up to the UN conventions, and that's most of them. By doing that, Australia has signed up to their obligations under those UN conventions. And look, there's lots of UN conventions, as we know. The single convention really does... I guess, and did at the time ratify countries' concerns about the non-scientific and medical use of certain substances. And we, as a, as a signatory to those conventions, are obliged to comply with those prescribed uh, laws, as they call them. Uh, however, the laws really, whilst they're enforceable, they're not enforceable to the extent that we know laws are enforceable here. It really is more of a political concern around whether or not we apply with those obligations. The classic example is Australia's been consistently criticised by the UN for its breaches of human rights, the rights of the child, the way it treats refugees. And I read today, for example, that we were required by the UN to release the Tamil family that's being held on Christmas Island. We were required by the UN to release them after 30 days in which we haven't done that. So politicians can pick and choose which obligations they comply with and which they don't. It depends on the political nature. And as far as the INCB is concerned, it's a bit of a toothless tiger. And quite frankly, I think it's become quite redundant. And I think we should really be saying, well, I think the INCB should go. I think it's just past its use-by date. And when you think that it was set up in 1961, and we do know a lot more now about drugs, drug policy harm reduction than we did in 1961. It does seem redundant. It is. It's an institution that's mostly made up of conservative representatives of countries. For example, when John Howard was Prime Minister, he appointed Salvation Army Major Brian Waters as the Australian representative on the INCB, and you couldn't get a more conservative anti-drug person than Brian Motters, who has um, over many years opposed programs such as the supervised injecting facility in Sydney and also um, needle and syringe programs. Again, it's, it depends on the, on the political flavour at any time. Several countries or jurisdictions have legalised cannabis now, including Uruguay, Catalonia, nine states in the US and Canada late last year. Would they have received a similar letter from the International Narcotics Control Board? Oh, undoubtedly. They have written to Prime Minister Trudeau saying, you know, you breached your international obligations. But uh, again, depends on the political leaning of the government at that particular time. There's been a lot of discussion about certain aspects of the international conventions and what countries such as Canada are arguing is the fact that cannabis is illegal is more damaging by legalising them, we're reducing the risks and reducing the harms and including the health harms. Because there are clauses within those conventions that do vaguely talk about ensuring that the health and welfare of people are utmost in terms of the way in which countries should approach their laws around drugs. And what about human rights? Not so much. You know, human rights really has been a discussion that has been happening within the UN around drug use over the last probably five years. We've had significant advocacy efforts and a real push from, from key affected populations, representative of drug user organisations, saying that the obligations within those conventions do really breach human rights. And there have been a number of efforts over the last few years, particularly through the Commission on Narcotic Drugs in Vienna and the UN meetings, that have said that you're trying to impose certain obligations on countries which 
include things like you know, ensuring there are criminal offences for um, even possession and use of drugs, which do in fact increase harm, increase risk, because we know now that it's not so much the drugs that are causing harms, it's actually the drug laws that are causing more harm. Yeah, and I think the focus on drugs is really out of line with current thinking about health generally. By arguing that the drug is the problem, we're totally ignoring things like the social determinants that lead people to have problems with drug use or to lead to dependence because much of drug use, as I'm sure you've said before on our show, is unproblematic. That's the case. The the majority of people that do use drugs don't have a problem with their drug use. In recent times, there's been a strong focus on harm reduction. Now, recently I was in um, Edinburgh for a conference and one of the presenters at that conference asked the audience, has any of them been to a drug consumption room in the last two weeks? And one or two people put up their hands and then she showed several slides of drug consumption rooms, which includes um, hotels, uh, which includes coffee shops, which includes smoking rooms in airports. So it allowed the people in the room to reflect on their own drug use, but it also highlighted that there's risks in all drug use. There's acute risks, there's chronic risks. All drug use can present some kind of a problem. And to say across the board that drug use is forbidden and that illicit drugs are illegal because they are dangerous is a complete nonsense. It's, a, it's utter nonsense. We need a far more sophisticated approach towards drug policies. We need to acknowledge that we live in a drug-taking society, as all societies are drug-taking societies, and we must look at the individual drug and the individual risk and provide information and, and safe use strategies rather than this notion that we just have to have a, a blanket ban on, um, on certain substances. If they w- were so harmful, why are we now experimenting with MDMA in terms of treating post-traumatic stress disorder? Why are we using cannabis in terms of uh, the medicinal use of cannabis? Why are we now looking at ketamine in terms of uh, depression, in addressing depression? So to use this sort of old-school thinking around drugs and drug use, it's a thing of the past. And it is a thing of the past. And that was Greg Denham from LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And interestingly, the letter from the UN that uh, was sent to the government follows an exchange between the federal and ACT governments with the, the federal minister, government ministers criticizing the ACT's move and the ACT government urging the federal government to respect democratic processes of the ACT. So, yeah, thanks to Greg for coming on, and we all know what the um, International yeah. <laughs> Narcotics Control Board is. Yeah, always good to hear from Greg, and I didn't realise that they were doing so many sort of different tests. Yeah, they are in the experimental stage for sure. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, and, and oh. I guess some people, in fact, might be using some of those drugs for self-medication or they just get mm. some benefit mm. from, yeah. Anyway, it's a complex and interesting and fascinating political and legal topic for sure. Mm-hmm. 
listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. 15, 8.16. About 8.16 now. And we're just going to finish off the show just looking into some of the developments in the UK over the last couple of months, really. The last time we spoke about the leadership, Boris Johnson accepting a role as Prime Minister, it was back in July. So... About time that I think we took another look. So back in July, when Boris Johnson um, accepted his role of Prime Minister, he said he would get Brexit done. Um, Since this, I think he's come to a bit of a realisation that the UK doesn't have the upper hand in these EU negotiations and it just won't be sorted with a gentleman's agreement. Gentleman's agreement is quite, when we talk about Boris Johnson, Yes, is, is indeed, yes. you know, a kind of, I can see the way he operates. And I think that's exactly how he does operate. Yeah. And he's, he's sort of boldly gone in, brashly, pretty wild, unpredictable, in the hope, from my opinion, that something is going to become available to him. But to get his Brexit plan through, he's now called a general election on the December the 12th. So I spoke to doctoral researcher at the University of Nottingham in the UK, Chris Stafford. And when Boris Johnson first came to Downing Street as Prime Minister, he was adamant that a general election wasn't going to happen. Uh, My first question to Chris was, what's changed? Well, I think uh, whatever Graham's strategy he and his advisors had um, clearly has, well, I mean, we don't don't know what that strategy was per se, but it doesn't doesn't seem to have worked, does it? also you know he's he's struggling to get things through parliament he's he's lost a lot of his own mps um who don't you know who have left the party or he's kind of de facto kicked them out yeah. because they didn't he just can't get anything done in parliament because there's not enough support for what, what he was pushing for so i think mm. um he's also i mean obviously he's also been pushing an election um i think part of it was sort of almost sort of a stare down with with labor um because they they claimed they did want an election uh, but then he, when he changed his track, they decided they didn't. So I think it's also kind of become a little bit of a stick that he could beat Labour with. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how genuinely he did want the election when he first started doing it, but obviously he's uh, he's got one now. Oh. So. Do you think he massively <laughs> um, misunderstood the power balance of the EU and the nature of the bluff? I think. I don't know if I'd say you, I think you probably knew full well the sort of the, the stance, the power of the EU. I think, um, I think he was, he certainly benefited from the fact that I think a lot of people who supported him didn't quite realize it. Um, but then in the interim, I don't think he didn't sort of figure out a way to cover, uh, cover for that. So it sort of came crashing down a bit for him. So I think that's, uh that's kind of where where he's he's fallen down i think uh, is, is sort of being unable to to cover for his his lack of ability to i guess sell sell what he's got to the public it felt like he went into the the negotiations looking and acting as unpredictable and as wild as possible in the hope that something would mm-hmm. become available that wasn't available before the problem was sort of the, the threatening the no deal. It was, I mean, it was, it certainly it was a popular strategy with, with those that really want to leave. But as far as a viable strategy, it really, really wasn't. I mean, the sort of this irony that that the Europe's supposed to be so scared of, of Britain leaving without a deal that they'll they'll give us whatever we want. But yet, you know, the UK is supposed to embrace this no deal as as a 
you know, a fantastic opportunity. It doesn't really add up. And also Europe, um, you know, Brexit is Britain's biggest problem, but, you know, Europe have, you know, there's still, there's still repercussions from the, the migrant crisis and even the Eurozone crisis, the Greek debt crisis, et cetera. So Brexit is important to them, but it's not the main uh, issue for them. So I think it's sort of a, probably a bit of British arrogance, you know, sort of overplaying our hand with them. Um, and the whole no deal thing, obviously we, we you know, because it would be bad for us, it, it would be bad for them, but not as bad as, you know, just giving into Britain, giving us what we want and, and threatening the single market, which is for Europe much more important yeah. than Britain staying a member. Mm. And so why does Boris Johnson need to put a general election to the public? Because as far as I was aware, he's already um, somehow achieved the impossible because he's had an agreement with the EU over the withdrawal mm-hmm. and he's also convinced the House of Commons with a majority of 30 for his deal. Parliament supported his, his deal, which is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the same, same deal uh, Theresa May got. Um, but obviously now, now he's, he's got his wish and he's Prime Minister. It's, it's slightly more acceptable to him to, for that deal. Mm-hmm. Um, Parliament certainly didn't like um, the time scale. He was, he was trying to push it through in, in two or three days, which Parliament didn't like. Um, so although they voted in favour and principle of his deal, they didn't like the time scale. Um, and it's, instead of giving them more time, he sort of gone down the election route. Um, I, I mean... I think a lot of it might be sort of saving face and that, you know, he, he promised Britain would be out, you know, on the 31st of October on Halloween. Um, that's not happened. Um, obviously he's, he's blaming that on everyone, everyone else as, as he would. Um, mm. so I think the election is just kind of a way, uh, I just, I think just to consolidate, cause he, you know, even if the deal gets through, he's then still, um, he still can't really do anything in parliament. So I think he's just, I think he's banking on this, resentment that we still haven't left that might just, you know, work in his favour and give him the majority in Parliament he wants. Mm. Now the UK will be facing a general election and what does the leader of the opposition, the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, think about the election? He's been pushing for an election for a, a long time um, but more more recently the, the polls have been pretty bad for him, the opinion polls. Um, obviously they wanted to make sure a no-deal Brexit was, was off the table, which it, it is for the time being anyway. It's still quite a possibility. So I think, um, to be honest, I was quite surprised. I think maybe um, sort of the Liberal Democrats and the SNP, the Scottish Nationalists, got together and decided they wanted an election. So I think that forced his hand, because otherwise it, it's a little surprising he, he went for the election because the, the polls suggest that he probably wouldn't do all that well. Um but at the same time, he is he is a he is a very good campaigner. So I'm sure he's uh, I'm sure he's going to put in a lot of effort, and you know maybe he'll repeat what happened in 2017. Yeah, because the Conservatives at the moment are looking favourable in the polls. Um, but when mm-hmm. the UK has been put through over three years of economic and political uncertainty with the Tories, why aren't they looking mm-hmm. to Labour? Or again, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn will pull it out the bag? It's, 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 yeah, it's strange because the, the conservative sort of policy, uh, apart from Brexit, a, a lot of their main, their main sort of claims at the moment is sort of vote for us and we'll, 
undo all of the austerity that we imposed on you over the past nine years. So it's just sort of <laughs> yeah. a very odd very um, strange. You know, campaign. Yeah. Um, I think the problem is Corbyn, Corbyn and Johnson are similar in the sense that they have these very um, uh, passionate sort of core support groups, but then the, the wider electorate aren't that keen on them. So I think although... You know, Johnson isn't popular with a lot of people. Corbyn also isn't the kind of person those people would move their vote over to. So I think that's, I think that's part of the problem is that Corbyn is as Johnson in certain respects, um, which is why I think the smaller parties are probably looking to capitalise on that in, yeah. in this election. You're listening to 3CR, and that was Chris Stafford, doctoral researcher at the University of Nottingham. And we were talking about the UK um, heading into a general election in December. So we're going to listen to um, part two of the interview now, and I start by asking whether Labour has to pick a side before they head into this general election. The Conservatives will be taking the Leave stance. So will Labour have to choose Remain in the UK? Labour have been a little on the fence with this. I think Labour's sort of more towards Remain than Leave, but the, the Liberal Democrats are very, very much. If if you vote for us, we will we will stop Brexit altogether. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think they probably will mop up quite a bit of the Remain vote, depending on how Labour position themselves going forward. At least, see with the Conservatives, their support base is very hostile towards the EU so they've it's it's sort of easy for the conservatives because they can be more in favor of Brexit and not lose too much support whereas whereas labor's support base is very split sort of a, a lot of, a lot of their voters want to stay a lot of their voters want to leave so it is it is tricky for labor to kind of find the right balance but i think sitting on the fence is you know if you pick a side you're going to alienate a lot you know almost all of the voters and in in the european elections um Earlier this year, we, you know, Labour, Labour sitting on the fence didn't do them any favours. They, they really didn't do very well in that election. Uh, it was the Liberal Democrats and, and the Brexit Party who, obviously, uh, on, on the opposite sides of the Leave Remain argument, but they're, they're the two parties that did the best, partially because they have this, they had a very clear position on leaving or staying in the European Union. Mm. And is a second referendum on Scottish independence um, very likely? I think I think it probably is. Certainly, if 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 Brexit does happen, um, I think I think it's it's only a matter of time in that respect. I mean, it's not. I think certainly after the last referendum, I don't think there was much appetite no. for another one. But obviously, Brexit's changed everything. You know, Scotland did. You know, by and large, vote the majority of Scottish people voted to stay in. Um, so Bre- Brexit's a good; uh, it's been a good tool for the, the Scottish nationalists to sort of push for a second referendum. Um, so yeah, if Britain leaves the European Union, I think there's a good. I think there's a very good chance the second referendum will happen. Uh, if Brexit doesn't happen, it's still possible, but I think it's probably less likely. There's sort of less less argument. To, to push for it again if, if we don't actually leave the European Union. Wow, so this could be the last general election with the UK as we know it, potentially. P- potentially, yeah, obviously. 
you know, see see what happens. But mm. yeah, there there is a good chance. Mm. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about what you what you think might happen in the next coming months. What can you see unfolding in politics at the moment in the UK? I think we're going to have to see Labour, as I've already mentioned it, but sort of Labour are going to need to to pick a side. Um, they are they are going to push more down the route of arguing, you know, that the Conservatives have destroyed the NHS, you know, fire brigade and police, whatever, you know, all those all those public services, yeah. um, and that's obviously that's where Jeremy Corbyn. He's he's a much better arguer, you know, um, arguing for the the common man over the Westminster elite. That's that's his comfort zone. So although he, he is going to push down that out that route, and I think it will work for him, but you know, he really does need to pick a side on Brexit because it, it will, I think it will cost him if he doesn't. And that was um, my conversation with Chris Stafford on UK politics. And big thanks to all our guests this morning. First of all. The IMARC organizers and uh, to um, Laura and uh, all the people that spoke to me, to Professor Mehmet, uh, Social Professor Mehmet Ozelp about ceasefire in North Syria and Fionn Skiotis for, from Australians for Kurdistan explaining what's been happening on the ground there. And Greg Denham. And Women on the Line next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.